In order to retire successfully, you'll need vision. You'll also need a plan to execute that vision. Welcome to Retirement Pathfinder with Barbara Lane and Phil Gusky. On today's show, we'll give you the tools you need to navigate unique challenges you'll face in retirement. It's time to chart your financial future. Retirement Pathfinder starts now. We're off to the races on another Retirement Pathfinder podcast. I'm Walter Storholt alongside Barbara Lane, Retirement Income Planning Specialist at Pathfinder Wealth Management, serving you throughout the Rockford area and surrounding communities. You've probably seen Barbara on the cover of her books, Roadmap for a Stress-Free Retirement and Remarkable Retirement. And you can also find the team online by going to pathfinderwealth.com. That's pathfinderwealth.com. Com. Barbara, are you ready for today's discussion? We're going to let you be kind of the moral voice of reason on today's show. How's that sound? <laughs> okay, I'm ready. <laughs> you might have seen the headline of today's show as Settle the Debate, Right or Wrong. We're going to ask Barbara to be maybe the judge here on today's show. It's kind of interesting in the financial world, depending on who you ask, you could get very different answers to some of retirement planning's most important questions. And so I want to see where our opinions kind of all stand on issues like insurance and mutual funds and annuities and those kinds of things, and try to answer why there are so many different opinions on these concepts. And then we'll ask Barbara to maybe settle the debate. Are we right or wrong in some of these lines of thinking? One great example to kind of get us started here, Barbara, is this question that I think a lot of people face as they get toward retirement. What's better, paying off debt or building up savings? What's right or wrong in that conversation? Well, both. <laughs> so uh, the question I would have is what kind of debt? When I think of credit card debt, well, that's bad debt. Mortgage debt, I think that's the next question, and I'll address that. So I would work on paying off debt, and I'm going to give you an example in a minute. But you need to save money in the meantime so that you're not going to have credit card debt in the future. A good rule of thumb when paying off credit card debt, if that's the issue here, is to pay off the lowest balance first. Now, you may have heard pay off the highest interest rate first, but when you pay off a credit card, there's some satisfaction in that being done. It's gone. It's done. So save first. Save 10% of your money for yourself. And then if you have multiple credit cards, then work on one at a time with additional money that you can contribute to just one. And then the rest of the credit cards pay the minimum payment plus the interest for that month. For example, if your minimum payment is $100 and the interest is $20, pay $120 and then continue to make minimum payments plus the monthly interest until it's paid or until that's the next credit card that you can afford to pay more on. But get the debt paid. Contribute to both your savings and your debt because you can start out with paying yourself. It is called paying yourself first by saving 10% from each paycheck for yourself but then have a plan like, for example, like what I had just mentioned for paying down your debt because you want to be rid of that debt. Yeah, it's a great point to make there because, you know, I think a lot of people get overwhelmed by how much debt they have facing them. And sometimes that can become paralyzing. So if that's your situation, you just put one foot in front of the other and, and get at it. Those things are just going to be a drain on your resources anyway. So get rid of them first before you even worry about building up those savings. And then you can start attacking that with what the same energy that you attack the debt with, right? There you go. Yeah. yeah, that's good. Sometimes this thing is uh, does involve emotions. It does involve mentality into it as well. It's not always about the numbers sometimes. All right. Settle this debate, Barbara. Is it best to pay off the house as soon as possible or keep a mortgage as long as you can? Mm, yeah, that's a good question. Well, it's a sleep at night thing, Walter, actually. And I, I like to look at it as using other people's money. 
But let's look at the sleep at night. And when I talk with people that are nearing retirement and they're not going to be able to sleep at night if they are facing retirement with a mortgage, then pay it off. The interesting thing about this question is that there's no right or wrong. It's a personal thing. Now, I think of, okay, if my investments are making 7% and my mortgage is 3%, then the difference is 4% and that's arbitrage. I would rather put that 4% in my pocket. So I'm not so concerned about having a mortgage because mortgage isn't bad debt anyways. But if you cannot sleep at night, then you need to pay off your mortgage. The other thing I think about when I hear that, and for people that I do see that ask that question, is they're actually taking 40, 50, 60, maybe $80,000 or more to pay off their debt, to pay off their mortgage. Do you really want to do that? In other words, is that money going to be taken away from your retirement, which could be detrimental to your retirement down the road? Because I always think about this. When will you ever have another lump sum of money like that again? 40, 50, 60, 100 plus thousand dollars. When will you ever have that again? Maybe if you're receiving an inheritance, but that's certainly not something you can count on. So I would be very careful there. So it depends on when someone's saying they're going to pay off their mortgage, how much is, what's the balance of it? But I also look at a piece of property sitting there. It's a non-income producing asset. So that's my focus. But if you can't sleep at night, pay it off. Yeah, it's another one of those same vein as the first question where it's a little bit of emotions entering that equation and you can kind of go with it the number route or the what makes you feel better route. Two different mm -hmm. schools of thought there. All right, so you're falling kind of on both sides of the debate here on some of these, or at least you can see a reason why you might believe one opinion or the other. How about this one? When it comes to life insurance, what's the best route to go in? Should we buy term life insurance or permanent life insurance? Well, a couple of questions first, and then, and that is, what is the insurance for? Is it to replace income? Is it to pay for taxes on your death? Now, when you're first married and you're raising a family, you need income to replace the major income earner, to pay for mortgage and education and expenses to live on. And term may be the most affordable then because it's the cheapest form of insurance. Now, for the average person, as you age and your kids are grown and the mortgage is likely paid off, there's less of a need for income replacement. So the question of term or permanent, I've always liked term because it's the cheapest form of insurance. But I always say this too, don't be cash flow poor and death benefit rich, <clears throat> meaning no savings, but then you're paying out high premiums in case you die. But term insurance can be a 10-year, 20-year, 30-year term, but it expires and you're done. Now, there's no cash value, but it's the cheapest form of insurance. Permanent insurance is more costly but you only have to prove insurability once because the policy doesn't expire or unless you stop paying premiums. You do build up some cash value. Now, I can think of an example where a combination of both could be helpful, and that is in a pension replacement. So in a pension replacement, what you do is you take the highest pension and then you buy insurance to replace the pension on death. So it depends on the need and your time frame and your budget. But for most people, Term insurance is fine unless you're needing it to satisfy large taxes upon death. Then you may want to look at permanent or a combination of both. It's uh, another one of those situations where you've got two sides to the debate. And again, sure. I think you reveal something important there, too. The purpose. What's the purpose behind the money or the purpose behind the investment? 
that helps dictate the right answer. And some of these things aren't black and white, and especially with things like mutual funds, and we may find this in the next couple of things as well. These things are tools, and just think about tools in your workshop or in the kitchen, you know, different tools in the kitchen. There's not a bad tool, right? It's just what function are you trying to accomplish with that tool? If you're using a hammer to try and screw in a, a screw into a deck board, well, that's going to kind of go awry. You need, you know, a screwdriver. <laughs> the hammer will that's be a, good example. a exactly. bad tool at that time. So. <laughs> yeah. Or like we were doing a crab boil the other night, Barbara, and we couldn't find our, you know, the crab crackers, not the edible ones, but, you know, the ones to crack the shells. And so <laughs> we're trying to use my hands and my hands are a bad tool that get bloodied and, you know, scraped when I'm trying to rip apart the crab without having some crackers to help out on the claws. <laughs> Not a good tool. Yep. Not a good tool in that moment. But, but that doesn't mean I'm going to get rid of my hands because they're very useful in other ways. So. <laughs> That's right. A bit of an example, a good visual for you there. All right, so let's carry that idea into some other popular financial planning areas. One would be mutual funds. Are they inherently good or bad? I think we already know the answer to that question, but what about that debate? Yeah, and that is a good question. Well, mutual funds, you can be a very small investor and for $25 a month or a large investor for thousands of dollars, you can buy a mutual fund and you have a basket of stocks or bonds or a combination of both, and you have exposure to many companies. Mutual funds do, however, have active management. It's an actively managed fund. So you have management fees inside of that fund, and the money managers are just trying to beat an index, which historically hasn't been proven, but it's an active style of management inside of a mutual fund. Now, another thing to consider is an index fund. Index funds and exchange-traded funds, it's a passive style of investment. It's a type of mutual fund that's designed to match an index, like the S&P 500 or the Russell 2000, and there are hundreds of index funds out there. You don't have money management within an index fund, so it's a broad market exposure. You have low operating expenses, you have low turnover, and you can actually buy index funds, exchange-traded funds, for pennies on the dollar. I would go with exchange-traded funds. That's interesting uh, analysis there. The other thing to keep in mind as we go through these, and I should have set it up this way, Barbara, but maybe people implied it anyway, we're kind of framing this conversation not for a 20-year-old, right? We're framing this in the idea of retirement, somebody who's preparing or getting into retirement, right? Very true. Yeah, so let's just keep yes. that in mind as we go through these last couple of examples. All right, this one's a fun one. It's the bad word, the bad A word, annuities. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't try and, you know, poke the bear at all on that one. Yeah, what about this annuity debate? If we thought, you know, the mutual fund debate for retirees is a controversial one, this certainly takes the cake, right? It absolutely does. And it's funny, you just mentioned the analogy of the toolbox. Annuities are just another tool in the toolbox. They can be good or bad. So if callers are looking for answers to one or the other, it's just really not that simple because in this case with annuities, with this question, it just depends. So it can be good and it can be bad. So when we look at annuities, annuities are for income. And the other reason people buy an annuity is just for tax deferral. So it depends on the type of annuity. But a fixed or a fixed indexed annuity can be good. There's low to no cost. You can have safety from stock market loss. As part of an overall plan, it can be part of the mix. Now, they're not meant for everyone, and they're not meant for all of your money because they're not liquid. You only have access to about 10% of your money per year, but they're not bad. Now, what I call bad annuities are variable annuities. Variable annuities have high fees for riders that you may not use. They've got the same volatility as the stock market, 
you pay for income, you pay for death benefit, you pay for each investment choice that you choose within this fund, that can be upwards of 3% per year. The question I have when someone buys a variable annuity is, did you buy it to die? Because you're paying for a death benefit that in the other two types of annuities you're not. Now you'd have the mm. same results from a mutual fund. Why not just buy a mutual fund? and put that 3% annual fee in your pocket when it comes to variable annuities. So I'm a fan of fixed or fixed indexed annuities, not so much a fan for variable. People don't realize that they're not all created equal, do they? Absolutely. Yeah, so that's big. A lot of different types of annuities out there. And so, again, the tool analogy is a perfect fit there. Which one are you looking at? And make sure that you're not taking the lens through which you view an indexed annuity and viewing that as a variable annuity and vice versa. Don't take your biases or information that you have about a variable annuity and necessarily apply it to other types. Really good right. thing to remember. And also you, don't, you want to make sure that it's not for all of your money right? because you don't have access to all of your money. So you certainly, sometimes you'll see these free seminars and it's an annuity seminar, but it's not an answer for everyone's money and it's not an answer for everyone. There are no magic bullets, in other words. Exactly. Yeah, that's good to know. Yeah, and is that pretty much the case with anything? If any advisor is ever telling you to put all of your money in one particular investment, that should be pretty much a red flag there. Yeah, it's kind of like your mom said years ago when you were growing up, and don't put all your eggs in one basket. Yeah. That still goes the same for today. Yeah, absolutely. All right, one last example here. Settle the debate for us on this one. You talk about things that have been in the news for a long time or have been around for quite some time. What about that gold debate? There's a lot of marketing and information about gold out there. It's in the news all the time. If it's down, it's a great time to buy. If it's all the way up, it's, hey, record highs. It's still a great time to buy. <laughs> it usually seems to be the messaging. Should someone yeah. own gold or not as they are you know, kind of approaching that retirement age? Well, it's funny because you're right. It is. It's all you're hearing about in the media now because when the stock market is volatile, then you hear about gold. So you have to remember that gold prices move independent of the stock market, but there is no dividend. So it's not going to protect against the worst forms of inflation, which is health care. Health care inflation is upwards of 6% a year. It's supposed to be a hedge against inflation, but it's not. And if the Treasury ever defaulted, we'd all be in the same boat, and gold likely isn't going to do much good anyways. But I always like to tell listeners to remember this. Brokers and dealers love gold because they pay a high commission. There is not a need for gold inside of your portfolio with a well-diversified portfolio. You're going to have something pertaining to gold in your portfolio anyways. But leave the gold to jewelry. Mm, yeah, that's a great way to play. That's a, it's a good thing to wear maybe, but not so much to own. I've always thought it's kind of funny, like if you want gold in your portfolio and the idea is like if the, you know, the dollar lost all its value and we descend into chaos, you're going to be really glad you had that gold. And I've kind of heard a couple of folks say it. No, I think the new currency would be bullets at that point. <laughs> not, that's not gold. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It'd be back to barbaric days, wouldn't it? Yeah, probably. So um, <laughs> I'm not saying or advocating you go buy bullets. I'm just saying, you know, yeah. will gold really be there for you in those times? Again, it goes back to the purpose of the money, right? So if your purpose is to indeed have that, you know, kind of that end of the world scenario, post-apocalypse investment, gold may not be the best fit for, for that kind well, of thing. Yeah, and then you have to have an exchange for it, right? Right, right. 
yeah, is the guy down the street going to trade you uh, some, you know, some seeds for your gold? Maybe, maybe not during those times. So yep. t- today yep, probably exactly. would, but <laughs> not. Not a good diversifier. Yeah, exactly. So, all right, well, that was fun breaking all those different things down, Barbara. I know we were kind of poking around and having some fun with our analogies here, but I'm sure these are how the conversations usually go in your office, right? You just kind of break things down on a normal level. I think often people try to make financial conversations convoluted and hard to understand, but sometimes it's all about just simplifying and making sure you kind of understand what's happening in your portfolio and with all these different financial products, not so much worrying about the fine print, but focusing on, hey, what's the purpose of this inside of a portfolio? Yeah. And it's long term, you know, it's funny, but we have to think of retirees being in retirement for 30 years. That's what you have to plan for. Because the question is, what if you do live that long? But if you think of most people, they save in their 401k plan, and that's been their savings, and they have nothing outside of that. So when they retire, they need some guidance because how do you access this money? Will this money even last me? I've got social security. I've got a pension. How do I take money out of here? And so all of these questions are valid, but you want to know if you have a safe plan for 30 years in retirement. And the only way to know that is to sit down with someone who's qualified. Well, if you haven't met with Barbara Lane and the great team at Pathfinder Wealth Management before, we encourage you to give it a try. Give them a call. Talk to them about your particular situation. They can help settle the different debates that might be happening inside of your portfolio. Make sure that you're making the right choices. 815-399-9806 is the number to call to reach out to Barbara. 815-399-9806. You'll talk to Barbara, Phil Gusky, and the rest of the great team there at Pathfinder Wealth Management. You can also go online to pathfinderwealth.com to get in touch that way. That's pathfinderwealth.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. We have the links there on the website that you can use so that you can always be alerted of new episodes. That's pathfinderwealth.com. Barbara, thanks so much for the time and we'll talk to you on the next episode. Yes, thanks for joining us. That's Barbara Lane and this is the Retirement Pathfinder. Thanks for listening. Information is for illustrative purposes only and does not constitute tax, investment, or legal advice. Always consult with a qualified investment, legal, or tax professional before taking any action.